Hello and welcome to the Thriving Broad Podcast and episode 61. I'm Louise Wiles, an expat change and transition coach and your host for these conversations with expats and international mobility professionals where we share stories, strategies, tips and tricks to help you build a thriving international life. And welcome to today's conversation with Trisha Carter, a registered psychologist and specialist in cultural intelligence. You know, I always love it when podcast conversations enable me to reconnect with old connections and friends. And Trisha and I first met through Families and Global Transition some years ago now. But more recently, we found ourselves studying with and then working on a positive change project with the Change Lab, which runs out of Australia, where Trisha is currently living. Now, this conversation was recorded in May, and of course, we talked about the impact of the pandemic in Australia. But you know, pretty much everything that we discussed is still, sadly, as relevant today as it was in May, from observations of the different cultural responses to the pandemic, to Trisha's tips for living with uncertainty, looking at change positively, and maintaining well-being in challenging times. We also talk about the importance of social connection and discuss how the request for us all to social distance is not particularly helpful when many are facing times of isolation and loneliness. Listen as Trisha offers a better way to frame our need for social distancing. Now, as always, if you prefer to read, you can download the full transcript from thrivingabroad.com. Look for episode 61. And on that blog post, you'll also find links to FIGT if you'd like to know more about families and global transition, and also two workbooks that Trisha has really kindly made available to you. One is looking at dealing with uncertainty, and the other concentrates on strategies for maintaining well-being in challenging times, and they're both there for you to download. Enjoy this conversation. Hello and welcome to the Thriving Board Conversation and today I'm really pleased to welcome Trisha Carter. Hi Trisha. Hi Louise, great to be here. It's lovely to have you joining us. You're speaking to you from Australia so we are literally half a world apart. (laughs) My morning, your evening. Um, Really lovely to have you here today. Um, So to start, can you tell us a little bit about about you um, and what has led you to be involved in the area of international mobility and intercultural training and where has your international life taken you so far? Okay so I'm originally from New Zealand um, and grew up in New Zealand uh, and went to university in New Zealand so really did not move a lot at all as a child uh, and then we moved from New Zealand to Australia um, my husband and I and our daughter Um, And then I gave birth to a son uh, and then we moved to China. And it was in China that I first really was struck by the impact of culture. So I studied organisational psychology and I am registered as a psychologist in Australia and New Zealand. I'm an organisational psychology. I'm always fascinated by how people are at work, you know, what makes work better for people um, and, and how they bring their skills to work and how they get on with other people at work and how they lead, all of those aspects um, about people at work. And then in China, I, uh, we were in a city called Hefei, which is not 
an expat city. So our friends were local people who were working with Graham. And the conversations that I was having with people then really brought home to me the different ways of thinking. And our friends thought about a range of topics vastly differently to the way that we thought, whether it was about careers or um, uh, childbirth or parenting or relating to your parents or, you know, how you fell in love. All of those things were, were their stories were completely different to ours and their beliefs and values were quite different to ours. And so I guess that struck me that the way that they showed up at work and the expectations that they had about work were also different because of those mm -hmm. beliefs and values. And so for me, that sort of began a real journey of thinking, how does that impact? How does that impact management? How does that impact strategy? How, and also the very real realization that everything that I had studied came from a Western perspective. And mm -hmm. so that all of the things that I'd done at university were really embedded within a framework that supported a Western value system. Uh, so after um, a number of years there in China, we came back to Australia. And so in Australia, I became involved with um, the global mobility industry and was working for an organization um, as their international HR consultant and then set up my own business. So that's sort of the why and the how. And I've been doing intercultural training and um, working with uh, people within global industries ever since. Brilliant. Wow. Thank you. So um, I kind of, as you, as you talked about that, that kind of linked into our current situation. So we're talking about this in, oh, where are we? Towards the end of May 2020. Mm -hmm. So we're all kind of in this COVID-19 crisis or pandemic, whatever you want to call it. And so as an intercultural specialist, I guess perhaps I might, you've, you've been quite interested in looking at how different countries and cultures have kind of impact, been impacted by this situation and have reacted to it. And um, what have been your, your observations? Yeah, it's been really interesting because right back in January, I was talking to Chinese friends on WeChat and, you know, they had obviously been effectively locked down, um, all of them, wherever they were. And you know, their attitudes were very, very stoic and very, it's what we must do to support the government. And I remember thinking, wow, I don't think we would think like that. Um, uh, you know, not quite being able to make the mental jump that, you know, three months later we'd be in exactly the same situation and would need to think mm. like that. So I was sort of observing then that their perspectives were a little bit different than what I anticipated ours would be. In early March... Uh, yeah, early March, I was at a meeting at the University of Sydney. Um, on they, they have a, a discussion forum called Sydney Ideas, and we were discussing the aspect of racism and the racist sort of feelings that had grown as the virus had spread around mm -hmm. the world. And at the question point, a young Chinese student stood up and said, why is no one wearing a mask? And she said, look around this room, it's full of people and you're all sitting next to each other and none of you had masks on and you could hear the intensity and the passion and the, mm -hmm. almost the fear in her voice. Um, and the, the chancellor of the university, the vice chancellor, he was uh, one of the panelists and he said, yes, and, and you know, I'm sort of waiting for him to explain, well, at the moment the science is saying that you know, the masks are not that effective. And he said, well, there's science and then there's culture which impacts how we look at science. And I thought that was a very wise way to think about it. And 
ever since I've been sort of seeing that the way the way the culture that we come from influences the way that we're looking at things so whether we should wear a mask or not is often influenced by you know the collectiveness of our culture um, as the risk has grown I've noticed some of those values shift and people being more willing to adapt to some of those different perspectives mm. um, yeah Often, one of the things I think is that when we hit something that makes us feel uncomfortable and we think, how could they think like that? Often, it's when somebody's values are vastly different to ours. Mm -hmm. So if we think, um, I had a conversation um, about mid-March with the guy, I was, he's a coachee of mine and he has come from Papua New Guinea, which is a very collective culture. And we were talking about social distancing, which we'd really only just started talking about then. And he was saying how he did not like those words and how he was really worried about having to social distance. And I said, you know, let's, let's change the words so that we feel more comfortable with them. Let's, mm. let's call it physical distancing and let's stay socially connected. And then we listed out the people he wanted to stay socially connected to mm. because, you know, we knew that in the days to come, we were going to be heading into more of an isolation or a lockdown mm. perspective. Mm. And changing those words for him made him feel a lot better because we were going, how can you be connected? What can you do to stay connected? So we were sort of um, together planning, you know, the, the things that he needed to do to maintain his well-being. Um, and, and that switch of words was really helpful mm. for him because mm. it conflicted with his culture. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And sometimes I when I hear news out of the U.S. and some of the things that people are saying in the U.S., then I'm very aware that it's just a very different, much more individualist perspective mm. than, than the one that I was raised in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's really interesting as you describe all of that. And I suppose... As you were saying all of that, I was thinking, yeah, obviously our culture and our beliefs and values feed in to how we react to all of this. And I've definitely seen that in the UK. I think there perhaps is a point when fear and that need to protect ourselves at a basic fundamental level of yeah. security and safety, you know, suddenly we will all reach for the masks. And, you know, that's what we're told. And I think we saw that in the UK, you know, a libertarian society, really. Yeah, with, yeah, more collective than the than the states but you know we we are also quite individualistic and i when we were first told to you know stay home i think quite a lot of people thought well that's not going to happen but yeah. we saw vast percent you know 70 percent of the population totally behind it and doing it actively and now we're beginning to see that slip and i kind of see that linking to exactly your point about social distancing because that has to me that's a complete conflict of yeah meaning i mean how, how do you socially distance i think as a, yeah you just made me suddenly think we should be talking about physical distancing and be really right. clear about that because here in the uk 20 where are we 21st of may yesterday heat wave so many people headed to the beaches now that wasn't in the plan at all although because our government believes they don't have to define it and that you know set the rules really closely that they, that we will interpret them sensibly and people weren't and so suddenly the social distancing you know if, if we've been talking about physically distancing and really defining that for people I think many more more would not have chosen what they did yesterday um, and yeah. probably are going to do over the weekend so that's a really interesting thing isn't it words create 
world, don't they? Yes. I mean, yes. <laughs> we know, you know Michelle McRae talks about that all the time. She's in the Change I, Lab in Australia. And that is, you can see that happening through this crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. I'm also quite fascinated, and it's not my area of expertise, but I'm quite fascinated by perceptual psychology and the extent mm. to which we're actually able to vis vision two metres. I mean, here we say 1.5, but you're saying two metres, so I'll keep it at that. Can you see two metres? I mean, I, I honestly, I'm, my spatial intelligence is low. I would say I've never been good at that. If you, if yeah. you ask me, can I move objects around in a room and see what they'll look like? I'll go, oh, that would look nice over there. And then my daughter goes, mum, that would never fit over there. You know, so I can't, I can't see. And I think a lot of people are like me. And so yeah. we might think we're being two metres apart, but in reality we're not because we can't see that space in our heads. Yeah. So yeah. I think the, well, the government here hasn't done a great job. I haven't actually seen anywhere that's done a great job on helping people to conceptualise that distance. I think we need a whole lot of lines painted <laughs> to help us to see well, how big metres is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that we, we, we had them in all the supermarkets. Yeah. We have them in the supermarkets, and so that's reinforced when we're queuing to get into a supermarket because we'll have okay. them printed on the pavement outside. So I do have quite a good sense. Well, I was having this conversation with my daughter yesterday, and, and we were arguing over what was two metres. So, yeah, there you go. Wow. Point proven. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so... Um, I'm gonna ask, this is a massive subject, uh, so just let's <laughs> just touch on this very lightly because I think we could probably talk for the next half an hour about this. But how do you believe, you know, noticing that there are cultural differences in our way, the way we reacted to this and enforced, you know, requirements around physical distancing? How do you believe, longer term, this crisis is going to play out on cultures? And I suppose I'm more interested in, in you know, not national cultures, but in in company cultures because companies are going to have to change the way in which they work and relate, you know, between their workforces. Um, what, how, perhaps a better question is, how, how do you think companies should be thinking about that in relation to their company culture? I think if, um, if a company recognises and acknowledges what they've just done in the past six to eight weeks and how they've done it, then they would be able to stand on the strengths to take them forward. So when you look at most um, uh, research that's been done into organisations' willingness to work from home and, mm. you know, questions around work-life balance, it's always been, there's always been a, a small percentage positive towards it and a large percentage. And when leaders were asked why not, they were always saying, Oh, they couldn't trust people, you know, people wouldn't perform, you wouldn't be able to ensure productivity was maintained. And yet, in the last six to eight weeks, so many organisations have switched very quickly to, you know, almost, well, not really business as usual, but they've been able to maintain business with a work-from-home structure. And productivity has been maintained or has at least, you know, gone some way to being maintained. So, at that ability to do a really fast turnaround, that ability to change quickly because it really was needed is something mm. that I think organisations can, can look back on with pride um, mm. and can say, look, we managed that change. Mm. And did we like that change? Was it something that, that we valued? And if so, we could maintain at least part of that change um, mm. into the future. 
So that that structural change is one really positive aspect. I think the other thing that's changed is that um, because I think many organisations have been very aware of the risks to wellbeing and Mm. the risks that people isolated are people potentially in pain. And therefore, many, you know, just in speaking with my clients and with other people, many of the Zoom meetings, you know, begin with a check-in, how's it going, you know, what have you been up to? Um, Mm. So that things have moved from a very fast task focused to an increasing relationship focus. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that, Mm -hmm. that you know, leaders have adapted. And leaders have been able to do that and have been able to acknowledge their relationships. And again, the the skills are there and the ability, you know, to pull people together across virtual networks has has happened. Um, I'm sure there are some places where it hasn't happened or where people have been left behind. But in lots of situations, it has happened. And that gives me, you know, real encouragement that organisations can continue to to work in different ways. Um, mm. valuing people and supporting people as they mm. go back yeah. yeah 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 that makes me think actually I'd love to people listening if you're an expat employee working in an organization I'd love to hear your perspective of how this has played out because presumably you know many of you are working um, from home um, and, and you're working in, in a country that's not your own so really interested to hear how that has worked out for you but I suppose the word that has come to my mind as you were talking and certainly my observation is is trust so there you know suddenly we have had to trust each other in a way that we haven't before um, and that brings in the concept of psychological safety and the ability to to contribute in ways that perhaps we felt we couldn't in the past but now because of an opening up of communication and deepening of relationships that whole kind of environment hopefully is going to be much more positive for the future. Let's hope we don't go back and let's move yeah. to this new normal, which I hate. I hate that phrase, new normal. I don't same know why here, I do. Same here. <laughs> I need to think of a new phrase. Every time I read it, I go, ah. But um, yeah. Yeah, whatever we're moving to. And I, and I think the important thing here is something I've been thinking about a lot is that you know, companies talk about how we as the company are going to change things. I think it's really important that employees involved in that and employees involve themselves in that conversation as well, because I think otherwise it will be something that is enforced from on, you know, on high. This is our new yeah. normal, and you're going to like it, rather than let's work together to create and evolve this into something that works for everyone. Like, okay, can't work for everyone all the time, but you know, for the majority, most of the time. So yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. interesting times. Yeah, right. Yeah. So moving on to the next question. Um, in all of the previous Thrivable podcasts in relation to this, this pandemic, um, Thriving Abroad Together series, we've talked about coping and adjusting to the current new normal. Um, and living with uncertainty has been a recurrent theme. Um, and I know uncertainty is particularly relevant to the expat community. But what do you think we can do to live well with uncertainty as a constant feature? Because that is probably part of the new reality. Yeah. I think it, that comes down <clears throat> first and foremost to personal skills. And I think uh, the first requirement is that people need to be quite self-aware. So they need to have an awareness of, um, you know, emotionally, where am I at? Physically, where am I at? 
um, and then, you know, to be able to sense their brain's responses as well. So sometimes you can sort of have that sense of, and, and with some of my clients, we've used the analogy of surfing. And, you know, sometimes the waves, you can sort of see them coming and you can feel them coming and they're just really big ones. And you can feel whether it's that emotional wave that you feel is going to break or you just hear a piece of news and it's just massive. And I think there are skills that people can do in that moment to really help ground themselves. And I, I wrote an ebook. actually, I'll send it through to you so that you can put it underneath this, if you like, mm -hmm. called Living with yeah. Uncertainty. And um, one of the practices that I put in that ebook was, you know, because we're talking a lot about PPEs to protect ourselves, I had um, FGF, which, you know, the, the three stages of just facing facing the emotions. So it's it's really unproductive to try and deny our emotions. So to sort of go, well, I'm not, you know, there's nothing to be worried about, or I'm not really worried, or I'm not angry, or I'm not upset. It, that's really unproductive. And we can spend all our brain energy trying to, you know, reframe our thinking so that we're not that when in reality we are. So it's, mm -hmm. it's better to face those emotions, to acknowledge what you're feeling, to feel them in your body, to feel them, you know, wherever they might be sitting within you to take some deep breaths and to breathe through them and then to ground yourself. So the G is for ground. So that sense of breathing, you know, feet on the ground, that moment of here I am, it's it, the wave is here, but it's not swamped me. I'm breathing through it. And then this third, the second F is focus. So right now in this moment, who do I want to be in how I'm operating? So, you know, if it's just, at times you know, when you feel some of that emotion coming, you might be dealing with somebody and, and that something they say might put you off guard or throw you around. Just reminding yourself who you want to be with that person. You know, yeah. if it's as a mother, who, how, what sort of mother do I want to be? If it's with a client, what sort of, you know, what is the, how do I want to be as a psychologist? And so really that comes down to having clarified your values. And so right now I know that I want to be caring, I want to be focused and I want to be professional. You know, so those are often the words that will ground me in that moment when I'm working with someone. So yeah. for everybody, those things would be different. But, you know, first of all, facing the emotions, so not trying to deny them, you know, acknowledging that they're there and where they might sit in your body and how they're impacting you, grounding yourself with some breathing, some sense of your body on the ground, recognition of where you are. And that might be a moment of just sort of taking notice of, you know, the environment around you. And then what am I doing right now? What do I need to focus on? Who do I want to be? How am I showing up? So it's mm -hmm. um, face it, ground it, and then focus. So I think mm -hmm. just those basic skills, which are, which I think of as your basic emotional, social, psychological, emotional skills to yeah. take care of yourself. Yeah. And yeah. in doing so, you're taking care of others as well. I mean, there's a lot more to it, but I think if you can master you know, just a quick process like that and have that awareness to recognize when you need to do that, then you'll yeah. be operating far more effectively. Yeah. 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 yeah and that, that sort of a process comes from ACT, which is acceptance commitment training mm -hmm. or acceptance commitment therapy. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. I think that's a really good framework. And I think in, in, in the previous podcast, we talked quite a lot about, yeah, accepting where you're at um yeah and yeah, yeah. and and recognizing that it's okay to feel that way because I think yeah absolutely. And it's going to be interesting isn't it to see what plays out longer term because there's a lot of talk about you know 
how people are being impacted by this psychologically, particularly those who are essential workers. And that, you know, that, that perhaps a different, you know, different, more yeah. of an extreme situation. But for the, you know, those of us who are you know, working from home and doing the best we can um, with what we're the doing. Other, the other group that will be difficult is the ones who have lost their jobs and yes. or yeah. who will lose their jobs in the future. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, and, and, and there'll be a lot of processing that has to go on before you get mm. to, yeah, yeah. And that's, that, it's recognising that there is that need and that process to go through. And I think that's something that as expats, you know, internationally mobile, working our way through change numerous times, you recognise that there is always a point at which you come out and settle into something yeah. new. Um, and I think that's helpful for us but perhaps other people don't know that so much so yeah yeah like <laughs> yeah. it's like the point at which the waves sort of settle down and yeah. they're not quite so yeah. constant or they're not quite yeah. so high and suddenly it yeah. feels a bit more like smooth sailing sailing yeah. 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 yeah 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 absolutely so that brings us quite neatly into my next question which was yeah you know, i kind of felt the need having done the previous series where we're talking about a lot about coping and reacting to the current situation the next I feel personally I need to, to kind of look forward a bit and start thinking, mm. well, where is this all taking us? Of course, there's a lot of uncertainty around that. Um, but, you know, some people are talking about a positive reset, you know, that there is a lot that can come out of it. And I suppose in a way we've touched on some of it in terms of organisations, companies and how people work together. Um, and that really does seem attractive. Um, but it can be hard to comprehend the kind of large scale change that some people are talking about, you know, from environmental mm. perspectives and so on. Um, when our day to day life can be so messy, as we just yeah. <laughs> described, I guess. So, how it's, do you think people can think about change in a positive, sorry, positive change in a constructive way? Yeah. I think um, the thing that's sort of been getting me thinking about change is, is when we go back to children and babies, you know, they, they're constantly changing and they're reaching out constantly for the next stage. And there's that mm-hmm. anticipation towards change that it's something, you know, like they want to walk. They don't want to mm. keep sitting. They want to explore. Um, and I think that's probably the more natural way that we are. And then we grow mm. up and we become a little bit fearful and we pull back from the exploring mm. and the excitement and something new. And so in a lot of ways, we're probably keying back, if we can, into that maybe that more joyful, playful stage that would mm. help us to see something different. And the thing, I mean, the risk of that fearful stage coming up is really high, I think. Uh, so it's something we need to constantly remind ourselves that, you know, change, change can be magic. It is messy, but it can be magic. Um, and so that that sense that it can be something to look forward to or something that we can co-create. It's not just mm-hmm. something that is necessarily forced upon us. And I think a lot of the organisations who worked to, to build the changes in the last six to eight weeks, they have co-created, they've worked together. Mm-hmm. Um, this, is, this is one time when human resources have become heroes and IT people have become heroes. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the organisations, the heroes used to be the finance people and, and now HR and IT, they're the ones who have sort of um, managed to turn things around and, yeah, and no, very um, true. Mm. sort of yeah. wear the capes. So, yeah, a little bit different. Um, from Yeah, so from, I guess, from a world and from a community perspective, 
I'd like to think um, that we can continue to think broadly uh, and continue to, to connect um, across the world. And, you know, right back in, I think it was February, um, you know, the head of the WHO, I like to call him Dr. Teddy, Teddy, um, he said our global interconnectedness is our weakness and our strength. And it is our weakness because that's the, how the pandemic spread around, just all of those planes and, yeah. 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 And yet it is our strength because all of those people who are sharing the science knowledge, who are working on the vaccine, you know, that, that many of those teams are global. Um, mm -hmm. Those teams are cross countries and cross functions and, you know, it's, it's really interesting to see the way that many of those organisations are working together. And yeah. in the same with many of the multinational organisations and, and yeah. what's been happening. And even if you come down to the individual level, a lot of the expats that you and I know are somewhere where they really shouldn't be at the moment. You know, they're yeah. stuck yeah. somewhere because, and yet, and yet they're operating. You know, mm. I know... Mm. You know, I know a guy in Malaysia who's managing in Brazil, and I know a guy in New Zealand who's managing Fiji. Um, yeah, and yeah. You know, I go, I know Australians who are in Papua New Guinea and don't know when they will ever be coming out of Papua New Guinea. Mm. You know, but mm. Yeah. Mm. so there's like this sense of um, flexibility, I guess, about location that is, even though the walls have gone up and the barriers have gone up from a, from a um, border perspective, mm. people mm. are still operating cross-border wise. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, for as much as we put close and shut down our borders, you know, that is not going to be, it can't be the future, I don't think. I mean, you know, we are interconnected and, and the solution, as you said, in terms of the work that's happening in the medical community worldwide is, is going to come internationally, I hope. I really hope because yeah. that's yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's kind of probably going to be the, the catalyst for the yeah. returning or developing and evolving into a different way of being connected internationally, which, um, yeah, we can't go back there, I don't yeah, I think it probably does help. And maybe, you know, there's a role for us to educate people just around the negativity bias and to just help people mm. to know that what they're feeling is completely natural again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not necessarily the best way to operate. And I saw this, um, my family, are, my extended family are all in New Zealand. And my mum, who is 93, is in the South Island in a small town. And I, you know, you have a, an app on my phone with the New Zealand News. And they did really good things, well, they're still doing it, where they put the data into every news article. Mm -hmm. And so the map of New Zealand would come out and it'd be broken into regions and it'd have the numbers of active cases. Yeah. And at one point, um, the region that my mum lives in had like, I think it was seven active cases and the next door region had like 140 or something mm -hmm. and I would look at that and I would think oh my goodness I hope they're not letting people travel from there to there and I just want them <laughs> to build a wall between Southland yeah, and South yeah, Northbury, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, um, yeah. which which is crazy but it, it was my desire to protect mum and that mm -hmm. sense mm -hmm. just that recognition that that's what rises yeah. up within us is a really helpful yeah. thing to acknowledge because we know yeah. that 
that arises out of love and care maybe, but it isn't, you know, that desire to build a wall isn't necessarily mm. helpful. No. So, no, no. But hearing it and recognising it is, mm. is, a, is the first step to be able to say, well, hang on, that's coming from a perspective of bias. It's not coming from, it's not coming from reality. Yeah. And actually that, that kind of leads me to the next question, which we partly discussed. And it's just given me a little big vision of you know, what's happening in the UK at the moment as, as people begin to move around. You know, we've got people putting up roadblocks outside villages, you know, around the country, not wanting day trippers, not wanting people coming in. And, and so that kind of physical distancing is having a real impact from a social mobility and connection perspective. And I wonder where you, know, you think, yeah, where does it lead? I mean, if we get to a point where there are zero cases and I can imagine it will just melt away, but I don't think we are going to get to that point because it's going to ebb and flow, let's be honest. So does that mean that we divide, end up with a divide, not just a divided globe in terms of, you know, quarantines and not being able to travel, but a divided nation where different villages, even down to that level, are putting up barriers? It, that's a big, big issue for connection and society I think in general yeah it sure is and I think you know it would be great if that came from government because mm. you know why does that village feel the need to um, we have some areas here so some of um, the communities at risk so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are much more higher at risk their health outcomes are significantly worse than Anglo-Australians mm. and so many of those people were um, advised to return to country and yeah. in the re um, I, I do hope somebody does a documentary or even even a movie about this at some point so you know people left more um, uh, city type environments and went back to country and supported themselves on country and I just think that is an amazing story and in that mm -hmm. situation there was a lot of um, language-based instruction for them. There was a lot of, um, you know, uh, support to enable them to get there and to enable them to be safe. And so, in effect, the government did shut down and say, you know, because these people are more at risk, mm. we don't want the rest of you going there. So yeah. that's, yeah. you know, to me, that's 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 a plus. And if there's mm. a if mm. there's a community that is at risk, then then I would want them to be protected. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, we started this conversation with me saying that I'm in um, New South Wales in Australia and that New South Wales has the highest number of cases and nobody wants us to go visiting in the other states. <laughs> um, and, and I can completely understand that. So yeah. there's an element where there's realism as well. And so we do want to mm. protect other places. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it comes, I think it comes down to kindness and that, that perspective of, you know, if I'm thinking kindly, about a community, then I would want it to be protected if it needed to be protected. So if there's a whole heap of elderly people in that community. Mm, mm. Um, but if I'm part of a community and, you know, I'm being kind to people outside that community, then I might think, you know, those people really need a bit of a break and maybe they should, you know, come to our lovely village and enjoy the whatever it is that that lovely village has to offer. So I think encouragement towards kindness is a really mm. vital thing that governments could be doing right now as well. New yeah. Zealand has been talking a lot about kindness um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and just the need for um, kindness. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's 
you know, something that's been reflected in local communities in the UK for sure. Um, mm. Kindness, compassion, support, definitely. So that's a oh, real that's positive. Good. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. We're gonna have, we have to work together, don't we? And I think that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. We have together to, and it's gonna be ebbing and flowing and different, you know, yeah, delineations as as the diseases disease progresses and uh, yeah, ebbs and flows, definitely. Um, okay, so my final question was talking about struggling mentally. Now I know we've talked about. Um, what to do when feeling and coping with a lot of uncertainty. Is there anything else from a sort of well-being perspective that you would suggest that people think about um, in terms of looking after themselves and their families at this point? When I've um, <clears throat> been working with expat families or people moving around the world, I actually <clears throat> steal the um, the British model from the new um, NEF. New, new Economic Foundation, is it, I mm -hmm. think, um, called The Five Ways to Wellbeing. And one of the reasons I love that is because it's quite sticky. So it just sits in your head really easily, you know, like two fruit, four veg. This is just <laughs> what you need to stay healthy. You need five ways to wellbeing. And so they are connect, um, take notice. So take notice is that mindful awareness, just, you know, that in the moment of taking notice of something beautiful or the sound of the birds or what the tree looks like or the sunrise. Um, so take notice is actually a mindfulness component. It's really the only one of them that actually needs explaining. Um, when I say to people like in a course or something, if you're taking notice, then you're not worrying about the future or ruminating on the past. You're really just mm -hmm. taking notice going, Oh my goodness, look at that sunrise or, you know, can you get that bird? You know, it's like just, you're just taking notice. Um, or, you know, the smile of a child, those sorts of beautiful things that you just, you're in the moment and you're enjoying. So connect, which is obviously connecting with people. Um, and with connect, I would say both weak ties. So the people that you just smile at in, as you walk past, I think we've lost mm. a little bit of that because we haven't been doing our regular routines. But I've found when I just go for a walk, the people that you smile at and they smile back at you, that it's, it's quite rewarding. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the weak ties and then obviously the stronger ties, being open and vulnerable and really sharing with the people that you love. Um, mm -hmm. So connect, take notice, be active, get out there and do something. So my friends in China, when, you know, I was WeChatting them back in January, they were stuck inside. They weren't allowed out at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, one of my friends had taken up Mongolian dancing um, and another friend was, you know, doing push-ups and stuff. Um, thankfully, we've been allowed out this whole time. So I have finally, you know, got used to walking good distances, which I've always said, oh, I'm going to walk more steps. But, yeah, I'm finally doing that now. Um, and I've got back on my bike, so I'm cycling, you know. So, so be active, really important. Um, and then keep learning. And I think this whole thing, you know, has been a constant keep learning. I mean, you know, so many people know so much about vaccines and viruses. <laughs> They're all becoming epidemiologists, yeah. Oh, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and also, you know, things like working from home would become digitally more skilled than we mm -hmm. used to be. Um, so even my mum at 93 can now do a video call to me, you know, so... These are very good skills yeah. to, to do. <laughs> yeah. um, 
And then the last one is give. And I think that's probably been a little bit harder while we've been in isolation or lockdown. So it might have been that we gave by connecting with people, you know, that we would give somebody a call to check up on them. I know people who were delivering groceries and things like mm -hmm. that to mm -hmm. aged people in their community. And I was so touched by the numbers of people who put their hand up to volunteer for the NHS in the UK. That was amazing, mm -hmm. those statistics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's lots of ways we can give, um, even just, you know, writing somebody a letter or putting mm. something in the mail for people. And mail has increased so much. Mm. Isn't that a good mm. news story as well? Yeah. People are getting cards and letters. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so those five ways are, um, again, you know, really powerful things. I've got a, um, uh, a document or a, um, a blog and a um, webinar about those written before the pandemic, if you would like me, right. I can send you that too brilliant yeah. okay well yeah that would be fantastic so i think in the show notes um which you can find at thrivingabroad.com look for this episode with trisha carter i will put and on the blog post i will put links to the um guide that you talked about i'm sorry i can't remember the name you gave for it dealing with uncertainty yeah. the guide that you have and then this link as well i'll put both of those cool. for people to go and look for those fantastic okay so one final question then as the next well, as, as, as someone who's been internationally mobile and supports internationally mobile people, what resource has most helped you and supported you through this? Um, this was a tough one, but I think probably an organisation where I met you, um, Families uh, in Global Transition. I wonder if you <laughs> might mention that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I... I was thinking when I was in China, I got a couple of books that were really good and they were from authors who were associated with Families in Global Transition. I didn't know about Families in Global Transition then, but since then um, it's been a real source of information and research and um, collaboration and collegiality, just people who've been there, done that and who share um, and support oh. each other. And it's a totally voluntarily run organization so i should just add that trisha has volunteered dramatically you've, you've helped hugely because you've been on the board um as well yes. so yeah i have been on the board for a number of years and um also prior to being on the board i was on a committee with louise which she is still on which is um a, a basically selection of board members so yeah. yeah it's a good way to Use your professional skills in a voluntary capacity. It's give. We're giving, Louise. We are. We are. Yeah. Giving and sharing and yeah. um, connecting. So lots of yeah. that goes on. And I will put a link to Families in Global Transition. Um, many of the people I interviewed have yeah, connections with the organisation. It is a wonderful one. So go and take oh. a look at that. Um, particularly supportive if you're a family living internationally okay well thank you so much for your time today trisha i've really enjoyed speaking to you um i think there's a lot of yeah great content that's come from that so um thank you trisha very much for your time today you're very welcome thank you louise good talking with you and you and you thank you and thank you so much for listening remember to access links and resources and the full transcript from this conversation go to thrivingabroad.com and look for episode 61 and there you also find the link to the downloads that Trisha has mentioned in this conversation and also while you're there why not subscribe to the newsletter so that I can keep you up to date with all the latest podcast news through my fortnightly newsletter so thank you once again to Trisha 
for participating in this podcast. And I'll be back soon with the next episode in the Thriving Abroad podcast series. Meanwhile, take care, stay well, wherever you are in the world. Bye-bye for now.